Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm super excited to kick off another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I am coming to you live from the Future Frequency podcast studio at the AWS reInvent conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. I am joined by Michael Kearns. Michael is a professor in the Department of Computer and Information Science at UPenn, as well as an Amazon scholar with a focus on fairness and privacy in machine learning and related topics at AWS. A quick note, if I sound a little funny, do not try to adjust your audio settings. It is me. After a few days here at reInvent and in this zero humidity desert, my usual podcast voice is given away to a little bit of a Barry White slow jams voice. But before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. And if you want to check out the studio, you can bounce over to YouTube to check us out. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. We had the pleasure of sitting next to one another at a dinner a couple of months ago, I guess, yeah. in New York and had a great conversation. I'm going to struggle to try and you know recreate <laughs> a lot of that conversation because we touched on you know everything from philosophy to your work, of course. But thanks once again for, for joining me here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'd love to get started by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning. Yeah. So first of all, I'm an old timer. I've been around a long time. And so I went to graduate school in the late 1980s. Just to set the context for your listeners who might be considerably younger these days, the field of machine learning barely existed in the late 1980s. Uh -huh. The conferences that we now know as NeurIPS and ICML were really in their first couple of years at that point. And machine learning at that time was considered sort of a, a boutique, obscure subfield of the then discredited larger field of AI, which was going through its famous AI winter. So suffice to say, I've seen a lot of change in my career. I initially came to machine learning from really an algorithmic and theoretical angle. So in those early days when machine learning barely existed, in particular, there weren't sort of formal foundations or models for thinking about machine learning the way we're used to now. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there was also, of course, the ongoing kind of debate between people that came to AI from a more logical formalism and those that were starting to adopt a more probabilistic formalism, which, of course, is by far and away dominated today. And so at that time, there were very few ways of thinking rigorously about machine learning and making comparisons between different algorithms, or even saying what would constitute good performance for an algorithm. And as somebody who came to computer science in general, really through the theoretical computer science approach, I liked theoretical computer science a lot and still do, but I, I was always interested in its application to sort of unusual areas. So a lot of theoretical computer science is about very practical algorithmic problems like traveling salesmen, for instance. And I knew that wasn't kind of my bag. And so I went to graduate school, particularly to work with somebody who was starting to think, my advisor, Les Valiant, who was starting to think about kind of mathematical ways and algorithmic ways of thinking about machine learning. And so I did that and then, you know, spent the first decade of my career at the late great think tank Bell Laboratories in Murray Hill, New Jersey where, by the way, a lot of major luminaries of the field, like Yannick LeCun were colleagues, and Rob Shapiri and Vladimir Vapnik. It was just a golden era for the early days of machine learning, had great colleagues and all of our time to do research, and eventually we all migrated to universities and then in some cases back to industry as well. But that's sort of how I came to the topic. 
I don't recall if I mentioned to you that I did a summer at Bell Labs. I was based in Whippany, okay. New Jersey during grad school. Okay. I was focused on statistical modeling of computer networks. Okay, yeah, yeah. We were doing a lot it, it of cool just stuff a, out it there. Was a gr- it was a great place. It was, I mean, it still exists, but it's not, it's in, not, it's the, not same. the same. Yeah. It's not yeah, the same. It was a wonderful, and I, I didn't think of it this way at the time, but it was a great alternative to being a junior faculty member somewhere uh-huh. because you had all of your time for research. You didn't need to think about teaching or sitting on committees or writing grants or the like. And so in some ways, if you were really dialed in on your research, you could be much more productive from a research perspective than you could have been in an analogous position as a junior faculty member where you would have had all of these other concerns as well as the pressure of getting tenure. And as you mentioned, the brain trust there was just it was incredible. Great. It was great. Yeah. All of us, whenever we get together, and you know, we, we try to do that at the big conferences when we're all there, we're always immediately devolved into reminiscing and <laughs> t- telling stories from that decade. It was great. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit about the focus of your research nowadays. Yeah. So you know, I've been working in machine learning for a long time, and as time has gone on, I've kind of evolved a bit too. And so even though I still kind of come at many problems primarily from a mathematical algorithmic perspective first, I do get involved in quite a bit of experimental work. And I think like everyone else in machine learning, I've watched roughly the last decade with some amount of surprise and alarm. I mean, (laughs) this field that was nothing when I started in it is now this successful standalone industry. And, you know, just to give some subjective history of, let's say, the time since, you know, early 2010s when deep learning first started to become a powerful technology, you know, I think I, along with many of my colleagues, kind of shared in the excitement of that initial period and big problems being solved that had before that been very intractable. And then, you know, around 2015 or 2016, all of us scientists at the same time that society learned it realized that there are harmful side effects to trained models and ML if one is not careful. And so there was a bit of a buzzkill, I think, around 2015, 2016. And like many of my colleagues, I think my first thought about this is like, okay, these are serious problems. We do not want to be training models that are making consequential decisions about ordinary people that exhibit significant demographic bias, for instance. And being a scientist, first and foremost, my first thought on this topic was to think about technical solutions to those problems. You know, in other words, if we don't like something about the behavior of our trained models, I mean, after all, we trained them. So we could think about changing the way we train them in the first place rather than waiting for harms to occur and then looking for non-technical solutions. Yeah. I think I've come to appreciate, especially in the time I've spent at Amazon, that you need non-technical solutions as well. And that includes diversity of input to the design process of products and services, diversity of technical teams that are training models. You need people with legal, regulatory public policy backgrounds as well. But the way I got into kind of what, what is now called responsible AI was primarily first thinking about how could we change the way we do ML in a way that would mitigate things like demographic bias, privacy leaks, and the like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we'll return and jump deeper into uh, your research on those areas. But before we do, share a little bit about your role at Amazon. Yeah. So first of all, part of this very clever mechanism that Amazon has called the (laughs) Amazon Scholar Program, which makes it very, very flexible and easy for people like me to spend significant time at Amazon while firmly maintaining 
our roles in academia and also to be able to ramp, you know, sort of our commitment level to Amazon up and down. So, for example, utility academic. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, right. And so I've spent the last three summers full time at Amazon and I'm quite involved during the year. And so I'm basically part of a constellation of teams within AWS that think seriously about many different aspects of responsible AI. One of those teams is a centralized team that I participated in the formation of when I joined back in the summer of 2020, which is designed to be a centralized team that works with the product and service teams on careful quantitative assessments of different responsible AI principles in our trained models and services. So this would include things like demographic fairness. It would include things like thinking about whether what are the risks of that a trained model might exfiltrate inadvertently properties of the training data, for example. We think about robustness, explainability, you know, all the things you hear about yeah. when the topic of responsible AI is mentioned. I should note that even prior to my arrival, when I got there, it was very clear to me that many of the product and service teams were already doing this kind of work, even though it wasn't called responsible AI at the time, very seriously on their own. So, for example, when I started talking to people who work on Amazon Transcribe, which is our speech transcription service, the first thing I learned that surprised me is that just in North American English alone, there are dozens and dozens of regional accents and dialects. And each one of these has different properties and presents different challenges for speech recognition and transcription. And so long before I showed up, that team diligently goes out and collects and annotates spoken data that's then transcribed by humans in order to do both bias assessments and to improve training of our models. What was different about this centralized team was that there were a couple of reasons for it. One was it felt that this topic was becoming sufficiently important and serious that it merited having a centralized team that, first of all, had a certain arm's length objectivity and distance from the product teams themselves. And, and so one of the purposes of this team was just to have that arm's length objectivity and distance from the product and service teams. But of course, we need to work with the product and service teams on these audits. And then the other part of this centralized team is meant to sort of codify best practices, collect data sets that might be able to be used for assessments on multiple different products and services, and eventually, I think, develop platforms and tooling around responsible AI that can be turned back to the product teams to make their work more efficient and higher quality. And so that's, that's sort of the science end of the work I do at Amazon, but then I often get pulled into discussions about how we talk about responsible AI in public via PR and analyst relations, get occasionally involved in public policy discussions and legal and regulatory discussions. And that's an entirely, that's a very interesting evolving landscape itself that I think we'll see a lot of important developments in the next five years or so. And this is kind of an approximate description of my portfolio within AWS. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, maybe one of the things we can jump into is the announcement here this week of service cards. It was part of a broader umbrella of ML governance capabilities that was announced as part of the, the SageMaker product family. Of course, I'm presuming by name alone that credit goes to folks behind the original model cards paper. Absolutely. Like uh, Deb Raji and Meg Mitchell, yep. Tim McEbrew and, yep. and others. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? And Yeah. So first of all, there were two related but distinct announcements today. One was on sort of model cards within SageMaker, 
Ah. And that's, of course, really customer-facing. That's for our customers who have their own data, have the expertise to do their own machine learning, but want to do machine learning in a responsible way. So SageMaker model cards is meant to help our customers in that regard. And I'm a little bit more distant from that effort. On the other hand, the service cards that we announced for three of our major kind of vertical AI services around face recognition, speech transcription, and identity validation from like government identities, government ID cards, these are closely related to model cards. And obviously that particular paper was an inspiration, not just to us, but I think to many people in the responsible AI community. You'll notice that we don't call those model cards, though we call them service cards. There's a very deliberate reason for that. One of them is our typical AI service will have many, many models behind it. To give a very concrete example, if you think about the problem of face recognition, a good face recognition engine will deploy multiple models. There will be one model that just identifies the bounding boxes around the faces in an image. There will be perhaps a separate model which makes adjustments to those faces. For instance, if your head was tilted in your selfie, it'll write it so that it's oriented properly. And then, of course, there's finally the model which is actually doing the matching and deciding whether this face matches the one that's on file for you, for example. And so since our customers and the end users of our customers experience like the holistic system end to end, not the individual models, we call them service cards because they're really like model cards, but for the entire service, right? The thing that you would kind of experience at the API level. Makes a lot of sense. And thanks for that distinction. I had not heard the service cards announcement. Okay. And so when you mentioned service cards earlier, I thought we were using two different names for model cards. Yeah, so they're, they're related but distinct. Yeah. And so to say a little bit more about them, first of all, a lot of work went into these cards. First of all, there's the underlying technical quantitative assessments that sort of form the quantitative backbone of the information on the service cards. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, these cards got reviewed by many non-technical people as well and many stakeholders, you know, including legal need to weigh in on it as well. So it's been a very interesting process because it's been internally a very diverse, multidisciplinary process to kind of converge on what we wanted to put on these cards. Just hearing that, it sounds like the cards kind of worked as designed. It was not taking information that you already had produced and formatting it according to some card. The card, the, the process of creating the service card inspired some set of work beyond what was already in place for these services. Yeah, although I would say that the technical work, the actual assessments of things like bias or robustness or privacy, that work's been ongoing since long before I even showed up at Amazon, okay? And so, you know, what I think the most important thing about this announcement is that we're committing to doing this on an ongoing basis, right? We're like setting a standard for ourselves. And when you look at the cards which have actually been released, There's a couple of purposes they serve. First and foremost, it's to communicate information to our customers about some details about how the models were trained, how we perceive the intended use case, what we perceive the intended use cases to be, a little bit about our quantitative assessments of demographic bias, and we can talk a little bit more about what we say there and what we don't say and why, and I think Mm -hmm. there are sort of good reasons for why we say the amount that we say now. But all that being said, I think this is a baby step for us. 
but it's a big baby step for us. And I think that the most important part is the commitment to do this for sort of all of our AI services going forward and not just to do it once and say like, okay, now we've done it for transcribe, we're, you know, check that off. Because use cases change, the data being fed to these services change. And so these cards, we need to revisit them at some cadence and redo the quantitative assessments, redo the language on and the guidance that we provide to customers on the cards. And so that's, I think, what I'm most excited about, which is, you know, there's the thing that the literal cards that were released today, but then there's the commitment to a process. And I think that that is in many ways the thing that will have the greatest internal traction within AWS because we've, you know, kind of as the saying goes in Amazon, we've walked through a one-way door. Mm -hmm. And because we're walking through a one-way door, I think we are, in my view as a scientist, we're naturally a bit conservative about how much detail we reveal at the beginning. But I personally, I strongly expect that over time, it's not just that we'll do more of these cards and revisit the ones we've already done. I think the information on them will evolve and it'll evolve in a way that starts providing more quantitative detail as we go forward. So this is like our first dipping of the toe in the water. On that last point, you're referring to the detail that you're providing about the services that are documented in the card as opposed to the details of the process of creating the cards? Yeah, yeah. But I think both will evolve, right? I mean, I think the language that we, that we use the cards, the, the way and also the amount of detail we provide on the underlying sort of quantitative assessments that are in some ways the technical backbone of the cards. Mm. You mentioned some nuances, the way that you present certain measurements. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so a couple things. So first of all, there was a lot of healthy internal discussion and debate about how much and what to say about our demographic bias assessments, which are quite extensive, you know, if I were to show you the full details of them. In the end, we decided to give information about what the demographic groups we investigated were. And of course, these very radically sometimes by service, right? Because in something like a face recognition service, you have visible features like skin tone, hair length, jewelry, things like this mm -hmm. that are correlated with different demographic groups. In spoken language, you don't have that, right? But you do have regional accents and dialects. So like what groups you're going to kind of audit for, for lack of a better term, and what kinds of data sets you're going to curate to do that assessment can vary radically by different services. There was debate about whether we should release information like, okay, on this service, the worst performing group among these demographic groups was such and such group. And I think there's two very good reasons that in the end we decided not to do that at this point. One is, is that the honest scientific truth is that the identity of the group with the worst performance and what that worst performance looks like can vary radically from data set to data set. So it really can be the case that just on the problem of speech recognition, different benchmark data sets, the group that is the best performing and the group that has the worst performance can completely change from one data set to another. The other comment I think that's worth making is that, and this is again some sort of a lesson I've learned at Amazon, the vast majority of kind of fairness notions in the scientific literature on the topic essentially adopt some kind of equalization of harm notion. It's like, okay, 
We're building a model for consumer lending. We think the biggest harm is like is a false negative. I, I predict that you will not repay a loan, and so I don't give it one to you, whereas, in fact, you were creditworthy and would have repaid it. Mm-hmm. And so then I settled at something like, okay, across these different combinations of racial and gender groups, I want to equalize the false rejection rate across different groups, okay? And... I think we healthily don't think that way within AWS, and the reason for that is a couplefold. First of all, it can just be the case that some groups present a greater challenge on a particular problem to another group. And so if you insist on equalizing rates of harm across different groups, it could be that the only way you can achieve that is to deliberately do worse on groups that you're doing better on in order to raise their rate of harm up to match that of the worst performing group. What's an example of that? I think the simplest example would be, it may not always be this way, but in general, things like facial hair and sunglasses present a challenge to face recognition, right? Mm. Because there's some kind of occlusion of your underlying facial structure, okay? That may not always be the case, by the way. Maybe at some point we'll figure out ways, for instance, of detecting bone structure better in a way that would let us kind of see through facial hair. But to the extent that it makes sense to people that right now facial hair makes face recognition more difficult, if there's a culture or a demographic group in which that is common, it's a harder challenge from a scientific standpoint. Got it. So the view we adopt instead, rather than saying like, well, success is when we equalize the error rates across groups, our goal is to make every error group error rate as small as we possibly can, even if that doesn't mean that we can equalize all of them. And we don't want to do the sort of nonsensical thing from a product and performance standpoint of in the interest of some academic notion of fairness, deliberately doing worse on some group. And so the technical work that goes under that, of course, involves you find out what your worst performing group is. And usually, not always, but usually the best solution to get an improvement on that group is to go out and get better and more data for that particular group. But it's because of these two reasons. One is that we don't think in this equalization term and also what the worst and best performing groups are can change radically from data set to data set. We give kind of high-level guidance on like what the worst performing group number was, but without sort of saying this was the specific group that witnessed that number. Now, you could have provided additional information and specified the data set. Why did you choose not to do that? Yeah, there was also a healthy internal debate about how much to say about data sets. And I think in the initial cards that we're releasing today, we say relatively little about that. Mm. Part of that is because, first of all, many, many data sets go into the training of our models as well as the assessment. And quite often, there's many more assessment data sets than there were, or at least they're very designed to be different, right? Because you're Mm -hmm. essentially trying to do stress tests of models. So you normally would expect to get very good performance on the type of data that you trained on. But when you start stress testing different use cases, things will deliberately will look worse. I think there was also the fear that since so much goes into the training of an ML model, and your technical viewers will know this, the cartoon view of machine learning is that it's a very streamlined, almost button-pushing process, right? I get a data set, I push some button in PyTorch, and out comes my model, and great. But I don't think I'm giving away any big secret, at least among the scientists of, of your viewers, that the amount of artisanal tinkering that goes into modern machine learning is just mind-boggling, and in many ways is actually kind of increased 
with the rise of deep learning because you know there's what's the architecture how deep is the network how wide is the network what exactly are the different activation units what is the architecture between layers do you have convolutional units etc cetera, etc cetera. and the the honest truth is is that even though we have rigorous and effective trained test methodology the way the soup is made is there's a lot of trial and error and you know you vary things and and so sort of releasing just information about the data sets without sort of the context of the rest of the training. I think we thought it would mislead customers in particular into kind of equating the training process with just the properties of the data set. You're kind of saying that reproducibility as a goal is kind of intractable for what you were trying to accomplish. And so you didn't want to provide so much detail that someone might want to reproduce. Exactly, exactly. Like we didn't want to give the illusion that we think these cards have enough information for you to go try to replicate what we did. They clearly don't. The other thing is the goal of these cards, I think even in their original conception as model cards in the the paper that you mentioned, these are meant to be short and readable to a very wide audience. And so the more kind of technical minutia you get into, the longer these cards will become, the less they won't be like cards anymore, they'll be like manuals. And the audience for them will become more and more limited. I mean, many people have before offered the analogy of these are sort of like the analog of nutrition labels on food, right? It's like ordinary shoppers who care about it should be able to pick it up and say like, oh, I don't, I don't like some of these ingredients or I'm allergic to them. And so that, that's kind of the goal here. That being said, I do expect that as time goes on, our cards will evolve to say more about our data sets and other topics as well, including possibly more quantitative information about demographic performance. One of the things that we've talked thus far about naturally is data sets. It comes up a lot in this topic. Yeah. There was a period of time where there was a, a pretty vocal, contentious argument about our algorithms bias versus our data sets biased. I think that was maybe a couple of years ago that that really flared up. Are you still seeing that argument play out or what's your take there? Yeah, I mean, I think both of the things you said are true, right? So I definitely think it's true that if you have heavily biased data coming into your training process and you train models in the ordinary way that doesn't attempt to look for or correct that bias, then you should expect to get it in your model as well. That's what the models are doing. Yeah, it's not the only way though, right? I mean, I think maybe the more subtle point that is less widely realized or discussed is that, I mean, first of all, every data set has some kind of bias, right? It might not be demographic bias, but it's gathered under certain conditions. And if you train a model on data under those conditions and then try running it on data from radically different conditions, bad things will happen. It might not be demographic bias, but it'll certainly at least be poor performance. Right. But the other thing can happen is even if you have a data set that you've scrupulously verified is free of at least the demographic biases that you've checked for and care about, you could still end up with a trained model that was heavily biased against one or another demographic group. And the reason for this is that, again, at a high level, it's pretty simple. Machine learning doesn't give you for free anything that you didn't explicitly ask for, and it also doesn't avoid things that you wanted to avoid that you didn't explicitly tell it to avoid. So, for instance, I'm training a large neural network on some data set that is free of demographic bias, whatever that means. But, you know, the training process is a journey through this very high-dimensional parameter space looking for sort of the minimum error point on the data. And if it happens to be the case that there's a 
point in, in the, the, the point that minimizes the error in model space happens to do very poorly on some particular demographic group, even though there might have been a different point, even a nearby point in model space that had only slightly higher overall error, but did much better on that demographic group. Well, since you just said, no, find the minimum error, and you didn't mention anything about like, by the way, if there happens to be a point in model space that has only infinitesimally larger error, but does much better from a demographic fairness perspective than pick that one, then you're not going to get that, right? And so at a conceptual level, the solution to this is pretty straightforward. Instead of solving what we would in technical jargon call a straight up optimization problem, minimize the error in model space on the data, you solve a constrained optimization problem, right? Where the constrained optimization problem is minimize the error on the data subject to these fairness conditions. And this is where kind of the research gets interesting because you have to figure out these are computers and algorithms after all. I can't just sort of wave my hands and say it. I have to like be able to mathematically specify the same way that the error objective is mathematically specified. I need to be able to mathematically specify what the fairness constraints are. Mm -hmm. And there's more than one choice for what those constraints look like, and those correspond to sort of different mathematical definitions of fairness. And there are different algorithmic ways of trying to sort of find a solution to this constraint optimization problem. And this has been sort of a subject of very, very active research over the past seven or so years. How does that dichotomy, if, if that's the right term, play out in practice at a, a place like Amazon? And I guess I'm asking, are biases in the data sets top of mind and easier to root out than biases in the algorithmic process and or, or not so much? You just have to be aware that they're there. And Yeah, I don't think I have a, a binary answer to that question. I think my intuition is that, especially in the era of deep learning, the training of models has become very, very computationally intensive and very expensive, and we are now training very, very large models. And so there is a complexity and opaqueness to that process that's, in my mind, perhaps greater than the mysteries of the data set that goes into that process, right? I mean, usually if you have certain demographic groups in mind, and by the way, you have data annotated by those demographic groups, because if you don't know the demo, if you say, okay, I want to make sure that I'm fair by race, for example, but the data I have is not annotated by race, I can't even audit, right? So we, we, you need that kind of data or some way or some proxy for that kind of data. But I feel like the problem of assessing whether a data set has bias is at this point, maybe a more straightforward problem than thinking about whether your training process might inadvertently lead to biases. And just to touch on a topic that we can discuss more if you want, a good example I would give is that, you know, you think about the rise of these very powerful generative models in the past few years, you know, large language models like GPT-3 and things like Dolly, you know, you enter in some prefix text and it auto-completes with sentient, grammatically correct, sometimes quite compelling text. I mean, I found in experimenting with these things... Is sentient your opinion? If you type in prefix text that's kind of 
like you might have from a novel. It has emotional human content in it. You get auto completions that are like a short story, and not always, but sometimes I've been sitting there thinking, you know, this is pretty good. I think I want to keep reading this. Yeah. But of course, there's some limit on the on the length of the completion if you're using the open source version. So the short story sort of stops in mid sentence. But if you think about what, for instance, fairness would even mean in these kind of large language models, I mean, we have a very good handle.、Mm. I think, in relative terms, scientifically, on notions of fairness for simple prediction problems like classification or regression, but like, what would it mean for a large language model to be fair? Right. I think this is an important scientific question that we are only beginning to kind of grapple with at all. And to say a little bit more about what I mean. I could give you very, very narrow senses in which I might ask for a language model to be fair.、Mm-hmm. So, for example, in my own kind of anecdotal experimentation with some of these models, I find that if you type in some prefix of text that mentions an ungendered name like Chris, for instance, but you don't use any pronouns, so you haven't committed to the gender of Chris, it almost always auto-completes with male pronouns. Okay. So I could say, okay, a fair language model should, for this list of ungendered names in North America, have a roughly equal mixture of pronouns in the autocompletion. But when you、is、think that about the distribution of Chris's, is that the gender distribution of Chris? I, I don't know. I don't know.、Yeah. You know, you, you, so you could ask whether it should match or what it is. But my point here is, is that anybody who's played around with these things would almost certainly. Criticize what I just proposed as like, oh my God, that is just such a narrow definition of fairness, given the power and the complexity of the output of these models. And I think that critique would be right, but that's kind of that's where our thinking is right now. And I think that this is an area that is going to present a great challenge to the research community in coming years.、Mm-hmm. Have you seen any early research attempting to address the question? Well, I mean, you do have the famous word embedding paper from I think roughly 2015 or 2016, but I still think of that, which it's a very nice paper and a very influential paper. But it's still kind of talking about one particular kind of bias, right? Which is kind of the association with、uh, between gender and occupations and sort of other parts of speech. And so, something that we think about a lot is like toxicity in language models, and is this model generating slightly More negative sentiment completions when prompted with one type of prompt, maybe related to some demographic group or identity versus another. Another really interesting thing is this is why I think this area is so fertile for both research and just even as a society thinking about these problems. There have been a couple of recent papers in which the use case of a large language model was really deliberately to replicate the. Biases and correlations that are present in society. So, in one that just came out like a month or so ago, the authors basically there's I can't remember the name of it. I don't think it's the American Census Survey. It's some other you know long-standing survey that some organization does. I'm blanking on the exact name of it, but but the details are less important than what they did. This organization goes out and interviews Americans on their views on various topics. 
So they will go out and sit down with real citizens, take demographic information, like this is a housewife, age 45, who lives in the Midwest, and then they'll, so they'll collect a bunch of demographic information, and they'll ask the subject their views on things like gun control and abortion and other controversial topics, okay? And they publish these things at some cadence. And so in this paper about a month ago, they basically used, a, they tried to use a large language model to replicate the numerical findings of such a survey hmm. by designing prompts. And those prompts would say something like, well, Christina is a housewife who lives in the Midwest. Her attitude on gun control is, and then they push the large language model button, and then they elicit from that some response, and then they tabulated them. Yeah. And the upshot was that, you know, they found that you could pretty, could approximately fairly well replicate the numerical findings of the actual survey by the LLM. And the reason I'm going down this rabbit hole is that this is a use case. We can, you know, people can decide whether they think this is a productive use case or not. But this is a use case in which you wouldn't want the LLM to have been eradicated for any kinds of correlations, for instance, between where people live and their views on certain topics or their gender in certain topics. And so it's easy to sort of say like, oh, well, fairness should sort of eradicate these types of correlations that exist in society. But there might, it could be that the most valuable use cases actually are to capture those biases in these very powerful systems. Mm -hmm. Thinking about that from a practical perspective, you're painting a picture in which perhaps part of the way these language models are rolled out and used more broadly is, you know, controlling for the bias of the language model based on the needs of a particular use case. And from that perspective, to your point, there's no single, the goal isn't even a single definition of fairness. It's fairness with regards to a use case and you design for that. Yeah. Is that how you see things? Play? Yeah, I mean, but but I mean, I guess I could imagine a future in which the user of an LLM goes to some dashboard and sort of sets sets a bunch of dials in a way that like, okay, I want you to preserve the bias between gender and, you know, or the correlation between gender and attitudes on gun control. Or even I want the output of this to be rated R versus rated PG-13 versus rated yeah, G. Yeah, and sort of toxicity, of course, is a whole other separate can of worms than fairness. You know, these are very, very thorny issues. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's an interesting time because as the power of these things has grown, you know, to the point that even people in the field like me can be amazed by what they can do, there's this sense that, okay, there's some very interesting conceptual and science questions here, but there's also a pretty serious responsibility on the AI community to control this stuff and to set guidelines for its use and to decide what use cases are appropriate and decide what kinds of generative models we should even be building at all, even though it might be possible. So I think in many ways, these generative models have kind of pushed to the fore some very, very difficult questions that weren't quite present when we were just building powerful models for making point predictions. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Michael, it's been wonderful to have an opportunity to chat with you here. Yeah. I think we did a pretty good approximation to our New York dinner conversation. So (laughs) it's it's been a pleasure and I hope to hope to see you again soon, maybe at a dinner in New York. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, 
If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.